You are listening to the Enormo Cast. As the holiday season looms, even the spiritually pure climbers like ourselves can get caught up in the consumer frenzy ushered in by the insidious jingle bells of December. But if we think about it, it's actually quite simple to do our part for the economy while not dirtying our souls with the cold, lifeless touch of the likes of the Walton family. First, wolf down that responsibly and locally grown vegan meal and pass a moment meditating on the sacrifice the quinoa made for you. Then slip into your hemp duds, trademarked, and hop on your sustainably sourced boutique wooden bicycle and coast on down to that goatskin yurt where your curiously bearded pal makes handcrafted climbing equipment. But before you taint your spirits with business, the two of you should enjoy a kombucha, brewed with the bacteria from whom you received express consent to be indentured into fermenting for you. Mmm, yeasty. Then your friend the cam maker lays out his wares, six bespoke cams he produced this year, by hand, after mining the material himself. Then he smelted the aluminum with only sunlight and the power of positive thinking. He daintily carved the parts with sharpened stones carried from the summit of Mount Fuji. And then they were assembled at a non-stressful pace by his well-paid, cheerful, and legal immigrant laborer of unknown origins. Because, hey, we're all global citizens after all. You choose one of the finely crafted artisan cams that should help you on your small hands project, but also happens to be giving off an aura perfectly aligned with your current astrological angles. Finally, you shell over the 3200 bucks and pedal home to have it blessed by your internet yogi, before wrapping it in edible rice paper and placing it under your tree. Namaste and happy holidays. Now, if that seems tedious, might I suggest you spread the love by shopping with the NormaCast sponsors instead? Black Diamond, Sportiva, and Maxim Ropes all appreciate your patronage this holiday season. And of course, nothing beats supporting those smaller companies at the holidays. Deals can be had at belayspecs.com, entry NormaCast at checkout, or on handmade jewelry. At PeterWGilroy.com, enter normal at checkout. You give money to them, they give money to me, I give podcasts to you, and the circle of life is completed. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. Sold That's, it out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. really should... Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. No, later. Anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormcast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is about 10 o'clock here in Colorado on November 5th, and this is episode 141 of the Enormcast, a conversation with OG Enormcast guest coming back from the first 10 
I say in the interview that he was number five, but he's actually number nine. The ninth interview I ever did, my friend Sam Leitner. And again, we've got another in a row of a slightly off-piste interviews because we spent about half this one talking about Vietnam. Why do we give a history lesson on Vietnam? Well, because Sam just wrote a book, Heavy Green, on Vietnam, historical fiction novel about a battle that took place in Laos, actually, and uh, involved a little climbing twist. And we talk about how that came about and how the real battle happened and where it happened and how Sam's been interested in that part of the world for a really long time. He was one of the progenitors of Thailand climbing. And we also talk a bit about Laos and its potential for climbing for you adventurous folks that are looking for the the new thing to get your teeth into, get your bolts into. And uh, we talk about bolting in general, so kind of a far-flung one. But, uh, yeah, a lot about Vietnam, which, um, you know, Vietnam's very hip right now, thanks to Ken Burns. I haven't dipped into that documentary series yet. I don't, I don't think I can handle it. My spirit can't handle it. I, I did a big rabbit hole into Vietnam about 15 years ago. I read most of the seminal works about about the war, including a lot of fiction. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to delve that deep into that conflict, although it's good for us. So if you don't know anything about it after this uh, after this interview, maybe go check out that documentary. I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, and so about that commercial in the beginning, kind of long, sorry. That was actually the cut. I ramble, rambled on quite a bit uh, more, actually, and kind of cut it down. But, yeah, it's kind of a, a weird time, the Christmas season, this consumerism that's, uh, you know, basically running this country and, but, you know, at the same time, you want to be cool. You want to get some gifts for people. You don't want to be a dick who doesn't give anybody anything. So, yeah, just some suggestions here. Help out the podcast and also get some stuff that you need. Also, I wanted to mention that a nice gift, a nice thing to look at is our friend Luke Mihal's Climbing Zine. And actually, I think they're doing a two-for-one over there at ClimbingZine.com right now. Two subscriptions for the price of one. And, you know, it's a little gift. won't set you back too far and, you know, gives all year long because that'll show up four times, I believe, is the way the subscription works. So that's a cool thing to do is try to find these folks who are just uh, trying to do their own thing and and make something cool and uh, throw a little cash their way this season versus the Amazons and the Walmarts and all that sort of thing. Or, you know, a thing I've done in the past recently with my family who has everything and needs no more stuff is doing donations in people's names to... uh, Nonprofits or charities or people doing good works in the world. You know, I've, I've gifted donations in the past to the Novik Cardiac Alliance, which if you remember back to Libby Sauter's interview, it's the, it's the organization she works with where they go overseas and do cardiac surgery on kids in places like Libya, places like Iraq, or find something maybe, you know, at this point to uh, donate to the fight for public lands, considering that, uh, Bears Ears just got shrunk. And Escalante Staircase just got shrunk. And even if those two don't seem to bother you very much, keep in mind that uh, if those go through, it's just the beginning. These things are going to get squashed all over the country if uh, these people get their way, the unnamed people. I won't utter his name, actually. It, it's upsetting to even say it. Yeah, maybe that's a place to donate some money this year for your Christmas presents. Although maybe it's a little too political for, you know... Uncle Saul or whoever. But you know what? Kids needing heart surgery, that's not political. Check that one out. All right, folks. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever you're into, 
to get through these dark times. The holidays can be both a bane and a balm. I'll see you one more time before Christmas, though. Let's get to the convo with Sam Leitner. You're like an OG. An OG? Podcast, oh, uh, original gangsta. Ah, okay. The original yeah. podcast gangsta. See, yeah. that's funny. You're like, what? I don't know. Yeah, I'm too old to know what OG is. Yeah, well, so. it's actually kind of an old, old. <laughs> it's not, it's not like something the kids are saying right now. Oh, okay, either, so. okay. But anyway, yeah, you, because you, you're, you were episode five, dude. Wow. Yeah, which puts you back in 2012, I believe. Yeah, well, you've done really well with this thing because you know it had a it had a kind of a a difficult start there right at the beginning. There was mm-hmm. a little bit of a of a thing with. The previous name change and, yeah. Yeah. yeah and then uh, uh, you have you have made it into you're really the voice of climbing now American Thanks, climbing man. so well we we and also like around episode five or like the first ten I literally was interviewing my friends mm-hmm. because I didn't have well, that's any, two episodes anyway yeah <laughs> um, I'll put that sound effect in there. Insert the little rim shot. But uh, they, yeah, but I mean, it was funny because I was, just had to sort of explain it. Like, this is what I'm trying to do. Please come on. And a pod what? Right. And yeah. I didn't have anything to sort of explain to a stranger. Right. There was nothing there to say, like, this is what it is. So I appreciate you coming on, but it was a long time ago. And actually, over the years, you and I both have known people to get in touch with you and basically say like, oh, I went ahead and like raised, you know, this much money for my Craig because of what Sam told yeah. me on the podcast, or I like started a coalition in my town. That's been super cool. Right. And I'm, I'm hearing it now from people who did not hear it back when it came out or even within a year of when that mm-hmm. when we did that first one, um, episode five, I, I, I'm hearing people who have become fans of the podcast mm-hmm. and have then gone, oh, I'm going to go back and listen to all the early ones too, right. and, you know. And I do hear from people who say that, like, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to yeah. work on my work on my crag myself. You know, I feel good about this. You made me feel like it's a good thing. So, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, it's funny. Well, yeah, people go back and uh, binge listen once they find it. Which I actually, you know, I usually warn them against that. Mm-hmm. That you know, too much caloose is not a good thing. <laughs> like you got like when someone tells me they like. I listen to 80 episodes in, the, you know, like three weeks. I'm like, dude, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's the year you're going to hate it. Like, my girlfriend doesn't even want to hear me talk that much. But anyhow, but thanks for coming on back then, and thanks for coming back. The the kind of the thing we've been talking about is that you have written another book, and it's got sort of, uh, not sort of, it's got this climbing impetus to it that, that yeah. started the whole thought process. You sent me a copy of it, and up until the... I opened the preface. I thought it was nonfiction, but it's fiction or historical fiction. Or yeah. Um, and so I was surprised by that because you had talked to me about this project that it's sort of based on as a real thing quite a few years ago. Yeah. With this idea to go research it, climb it, find it, mm-hmm. and then write a nonfiction book about it. Yeah, I was trying to find climbers who were goofy enough that they would actually want to go and climb the mountain and I would tell the story of what took place on the mountain while I climbed it. So I hit you up and you were wise enough to say, no, I ain't doing that. I don't know if I was. (laughs) To be honest with you, I mean, it's always, we're like ahead of ourselves because no one knows what we're talking about. Yeah. But 
I don't, I remember thinking it was an interesting idea, but you, you kind of didn't have anything but the, the seed of the information. Yeah. So, and, and, and a story about an M16 yeah. on a ledge and all this sort of stuff. So, so tell us what the hell we're talking about. Well, okay. So well, I'll go back to the very beginnings of me finding out about it. First of all, the, the, one of the first things, one of the, one of the big thoughts in my life has been about the Vietnam War. Like I, uh, what we call the Vietnam War, what the Vietnamese call the American War, and what history is probably going to call the Second Indochina War, which was the war uh, that took place basically from, oh, let's say 1960 to 1975 in South Vietnam and North Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And that war was on the TV when I was born. So my very first thought sitting with my dad, um, my very first thought, my very first thing I ever saw, memory that I have, was us walking on the moon. The second was um, a C-130 being loaded up with coffins in, uh, in Saigon. Um, and so I, I, uh, we grew, I grew up, my first few years, I was at, near an air base outside of Corpus Christi, Texas. and. Uh, you know, there were planes coming in from Southeast Asia all the time. So this was just, it was in the news when I was a, a real little kid, and it was in my face as well. So I grew up, I came to have this fascination with that particular bit of time and what took place there. Fast forward 20 years, and uh, Mark Newcomb and I on a lark go to Thailand to try and find karst towers to climb on that we had seen in National Geographic. And sure enough, we wind up finding Riley Beach and, you know, we, we find paradise that, that everybody knows about now, you know, all this climbing in Southeast Asia. That rock, which I just think is the best rock in the world to climb on, um, it's just so much fun, it's so gymnastic, uh, that rock extends all the way from China to Borneo. And this, this karst formation is the largest barrier reef we know of in, in world history. And uh, it runs all the way from southern China to northern Borneo. And it's at its very highest uh, on the Annamite Mountains, which are the mountain chain that separates Vietnam from Laos. And I recognized this, and I wanted to find the biggest walls of it I possibly could uh, to put up, you know, 10, 15-foot pitch uh, sport routes on that kind of rock. And there's no information on it because those countries had been pretty much closed off since the 60s. Mm-hmm. The best information I could find was war information. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vietnamese used big caves for for uh, hospitals, for storage depots. Uh, they mounted uh, surface-to-air missiles and, and guns on top of the mountains. Um, uh, we used them as reference points uh, during bombing raids. That, that's all the kind of stuff when you... When you um, when you want to find out about the, these walls, you had to look into the military information right. to find it. So you're thinking, like, if they put a you know a hospital in a cave, it might be a sweet. It, it might be, yeah, it might be like a millennium type cave, right? right. So, yeah. so, uh, but at this point, this is, we're talking like early '90s at this point. I still really couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and right about then, I found out about this battle that took place on this particular mountain that is revered by the Hmong tribe. That is. It's from that area. Um, the mountain's called Pupati. And the battle that took place was because we, the, the United States and our allies, which 
most people don't realize, but we had a bunch of allies in the Vietnam War. We decided we were going to put an air traffic control center on top of this mountain because from the top of this mountain, it was 135 miles to downtown Hanoi. And we need to, needed to, to bomb the supply train of weapons that was coming south from, uh, from a port in North Vietnam and then going to all the way down to Laos and into South Vietnam and fueling the insurgency in the south. So we would try and accurately bomb this stuff, but we couldn't for half the year because of the monsoon. Mm-hmm. Um, the cloud cover just kept it so that our, you know, it was before we had JDAMs and all this, this satellite-directed stuff that, that, that we see now. So what we did was we put an air traffic control center on top of this mountain, mm-hmm. and instead of directing planes how to land, they were directing planes how to bomb. And uh, this was really effective instantly. And the Vietnamese realized it was really effective. So they did everything they could to get rid of it. And we did everything we could to keep it there. And yet neither one of these countries, the United States or the North Vietnamese, were supposed to be in Laos. It was a neutral country. Mm -hmm. And we had permission from the government, but from the world's opinion, we were not supposed to be there. And uh, it was a it was a violation of a, a treaty in 19, that was put down in Geneva in 1961. So it was kept secret until 1988 that this battle even took place, but it was okay. a major battle. And so coming back to you and I, possibly going there, and uh, uh, Singer Smith and I tried to get there, and Volker and I have tried to get there, my buddy from Germany, and uh, we've all failed. Uh, but But my idea had been I was going to write the story of what took place, this military action and and the history of the region, and I have my own reasons for that too, but I, I, I was going to um, write that alongside us climbing the mountain mm-hmm. and uh, the story of what that would be like. Um, but I have never been able to get there. Um, I'm going to try again this fall, but I've never been able to get there. And finally, a couple years ago, I decided I'm going to write it as a historical fiction. And I made up the characters, but every other thing in the book is real, and it does have a climbing twist to it mm-hmm. that uh, uh, is pretty interesting that, that we, we wouldn't have thought was there. It's almost kind of an Iger sanctiony thing. Right on. Which I love all the Iger sanctioned stuff that goes with the podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> we shall continue with style. So what's the problem? Like, tell me about why you can't get there. Ooh. I mean, what's been the problem in terms of getting there? Is it dangerous? Are there the Laotians don't armed, it, it, armed? the Laotians don't want you to go there. You can now get fairly close to it, but but Laos has been slow about opening up over the last 20 years. And now tourism is, you can go anywhere in Laos pretty much. But this, um, we lost uh, about a dozen people um, on this mountain, Mm -hmm. and bodies never found. Okay. So that fueled a lot of speculation of they were never, they were not actually killed, um, in battle, that they were taken hostage, and they ended up, who knows, North Korea, Soviet Union, because they were specialists in radar equipment and things like that. Okay. So maybe they were taken and 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 you know the horrible things done to them and stuff for information and so forth. And that speculation then kind of gives Laos, North Vietnam, the Soviets a black eye. So they they don't like that kind of talk, so then the Laotians' response is, all right, we're just not going to let you guys, anybody, even go near this thing. Okay. It's almost like a punishment. 
And uh, they have now let a couple of uh, the MIA search teams go in there and sure. look for uh, bones and, and so forth. And they have found stuff that mm-hmm. indicates that the people were there, um, were killed there. Um, not, not every one of them. Um, and I, I can't remember what all the evidence is now, you know, whether DNA has been identified as certain people and stuff, dog tags, things like that. But they have found a bunch of evidence that, that the people were there and that nothing really bad. But the precedent had been set. We're just not going to let you guys go there. Mm-hmm. And there's another reason, too. It's dangerous to go there. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to ignore in all these years of looking at these big faces, and like you said, like, okay, there's a hot, there was a, a storage facility in this giant cave. Um, well, that means there's an unbelievable amount of unexploded ordnance lying around the mouth of that cave. There's going to be unexploded landmines. There's going to be tripwire mines. There's going to be American bombs that didn't go off. There's going to be all that kind of stuff. And this mountain, the battle that took place to uh, overtake the mountain and some subsequent battles that took place there afterwards left an enormous amount of junk that can still blow up. Mm-hmm. People get killed every week in Laos to this day. It has more unexploded ordnance than any other country in the world, I believe, even more than Iraq. Mm-hmm. May not more than Iraq now. Iraq, Iraq just keeps adding up. Yeah, but, yeah right. But uh, uh, for a long time, we actually dropped more bombs on Laos than were dropped in all of World War II. By all sides. By all sides. Right. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of them didn't go off. They land in the mud, don't go off, and then a farmer hits them with their plow 25 years later. Mm-hmm. So um, they don't have the anti-bomb teams that, like, the Germans have, you know, where they empty a, they empty an entire town because they find one during a construction project sure. and some guys come and take it apart. No, it's like, huh, well, go get the donkey and we'll drag this thing over to the side of the property. And sure yeah, enough, okay. somebody gets blown up. Right. So. so what about the people there in terms of, you know, their attitudes, do you think, if you popped up in that zone because I mean tell us a little bit is it the Hmong is that how you pronounce it yeah the, uh, uh, the H is almost silent right so um, but tell us about those people in terms of their their business in the war and their business now and yeah kind of because they they they're sort of like a, they seem like a, a group apart from these political boundaries and ideas of a country and all these sorts of things absolutely kind of like, like the Bedouin you know, they they were there. They're still there. Yeah, they're they were in all the different countries. They moved south. We don't know exactly. It was probably a couple thousand years ago from China. The other various tribes, the Viet, the uh, Lao, the Lowland Lao, they controlled the low areas, and no one wanted to live in the mountains because the mountains were very rugged. Um, yeah, we're not talking Himalayan in height, um, but they're it's very difficult terrain to eke out a living in. And so these people lived in the highlands, which is on both sides of the border. And for the longest time, um, you know, up until the 20th century, early 19th century, when when things started getting chopped up into uh, colonies, and this is the actual border of a of a country rather right. than just a general area belongs right. to somebody, that started happening. Uh, these folks skirted over those things, like you're saying, of the Bedouin. They they lived on the east side and the west side of the mountain range. Right. Um, and the, the border would run right down the top of the mountain range. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really adhere ever to half of us live in Vietnam and half of us live in Laos or something like that. They just figured that the highland is our area. Mm-hmm. And when, just after World War II, 
when the Vietnamese were first beginning to fight for their independence from the French, uh, these folks said, no, we, we like the French. They let us live our lifestyle, and you're saying we're going to have to start doing some sort of communal thing where we share our, all our stuff with you, and we control the opium trade because opium grows in the highlands. We don't want to share the opium trade with you. It's That's our business. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they went to war with the Vietnamese. They were on the French side. Um, and then when we entered the war and the French ran away, uh, they were still on our side. They were still, you know, they said, well, we'll work for the Americans now. We, we were with the French for a long time. Now we'll be with the Americans. Sadly, um, you know, this is something that all peoples should remember. There's one side wins and one side loses in a war. And uh, when we lost, they were, you know, up a creek without a paddle. Right. And uh, huge numbers of Hmong uh, immigrated to the United States. It's actually fairly, um, there may even be more Hmong in in the United States than there are in Laos now. Um, but uh, uh, they were left, you know, large numbers of them were still in Laos, and then Laos fell to, uh, you know, the various regimes, the, the communist regimes, and there were re-education centers and all that kind of stuff. All the, all the bad sides of, of the post-war stuff happened. And uh, I think you can find that, you know, they were, they were our allies, but they kind of got screwed over. And that, I mean, that's sort of, you know, anytime you lose a war, that's what happens. Um, you know, if, 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 if Iraq doesn't improve, it's going to be a real bad thing for the Kurds, and the Kurds are going to be mad at us because we eventually are going to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this, is, this is just how wars go. So, um, so bring it up to today. So today think, there are still Hmong there, right. and um, how they feel about us, they're probably a little resentful because of the unexploded ordinance, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're they're going to be uh, uh, ha- have had to you know they've got dumped years ago by us and left in this bad position. However, we're getting to the point that it's ancient history. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm 50 and I was born um, when this was going on. Sure. So it's only the oldest guys that were actually a part of the war back then. You know, they're in their 70s and 80s. Right. And uh, uh, they're not, you know, there's not that many of them. So um, a lot more of what you're going to see is a modern opinion of us. Sure. And, you know, the Vietnamese right now, for instance, they desperately want to be friends with the United States. And I kind of touch on this in the book that mm-hmm. one of my characters say, and I wouldn't be surprised if we were over here in 25 years defending these guys. Because mm-hmm. we end up doing that. You know, you think of, you think of, you know, we're fighting the Germans and 20 years later, we're in the Cuban Missile Crisis, basically over a Cold War that's fought in Europe. That is a, a, a thing that, that you have to just uh, uh, accept that times change, politics change. And here we are right now. We're trying to be friends with the Chinese, but we also recognize the Chinese are being a little bit pushy about where their territory is supposed to be in the South China Sea. And the Vietnamese are saying, hey, you know, we fought with you guys for 20 years, America. We've been fighting with the Chinese for 1,500 years now. Can can you be our friend, please? And right. uh, so I think I think as much as there might be some resentment for the past, there is also um, a hope that we can be friends. And a lot of the Buddhist stuff comes into play too. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, "Hey, live and live and let live. We'll be all right." You know, right. Um, right. You know, Southeast Asia, they're pretty friendly. You don't get a lot of you don't like get a lot of holding. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so you feel like you <clears throat> went in there to climb. And uh, that you, that in terms of the local 
folks, uh, you'd, you'd probably not have any problem. There'd be no problem with the local folks. Okay, right. There'd be no problem with the local folks. But this mountain is a military base now. It's not a big one. Like, I think they've just got a, a station of people. Oh, really? On it. Yeah. That's so what does it look like? It looks kind of like is a... Is there a picture anywhere? There's a like bunch online? of pictures online. It looks kind of like a like a fin. What's it like called Like a shark's again? fin. Pupalti. P-H-O-U. Pu, which is mountain. Okay. Pa, P-H-A, and then third word is T-H-I. So this is sort of a, right. you know, it's an, a, a, a phonetic Englishizing right. of right. a... But uh, what does it look like like if, from a climber standpoint? I mean, it's not like as a, good of a wall as I wanted it to be. Right, right. Okay, so, there's, a bunch, there's probably a bunch of crags on it that are good because there's, right. there's, it's broken into steep sections, so it'll be like very steep you know, 40, 50 degree jungle, and then there'll be a right. wall, and then there'll be a little, you know, more jungle, and then there'll be a wall. Um, it's not, I was, you know, I was hoping for this big overhanging face. The biggest face on it, which comes into play in my book, that face is uh, uh, probably about, in, in climbing distance by fifth class, mm -hmm. probably about 800 feet. Okay. But the overall, you know, the overall, uh, uh, Size of the you know of the face if you factor in like sort of jungle nearing that you got to right. do to get to it is more along the line of 2,500 feet. Okay. So Heavy Green is the name of the book and that was the name of the operation. Mm -hmm. um, operation Heavy Green was this this uh, uh, plan to to more accurately put bombs on North Vietnam and we did it actually in two ways. One of them was um, sort of triangulating off off radio equipment. Um, but the second one was this installation of air traffic control guys guiding planes in. Mm -hmm. So, and so I mean I don't want you I, you probably want to like let the books twists and turns lie. But in 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 real life, you know the the assaults of it did it involve like dudes climbing up these faces to try to get uh, to but, it or. I don't want to give too much away, oh, but on. you know, uh, uh, the uh, yeah, the I mean, I Sun Tzu said, you know, you should uh, uh, hit the enemy where he doesn't, where he least expects it. Sure. Let's put it that way. Right. So, um, you know, if you have a big mountain and you've got a big cliff on one side, you might not expect the enemy's going to attack you from there. Right. Okay. So I'll just I'll just put it like that. All right. <laughs> and there's and there, and there there they did uh, there was some training for climbing as well. Oh, right on. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll sort of leave that behind now. But that sounds, I mean, it sounds pretty cool. Um, this idea of trying to go climb it is still in your mind. What do you think is? Uh, what's the difference? You said you're going to try again. I think as time or, passes, I think they they'll just give up on. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, you know, it's all over with. It's 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 right. in the past. So you're just going to like try to go through the channels again. And I'm not even going to. I'm just going to try and go out there. Okay. And uh, you know, I, I I'm pretty sure you won't be. Um, arrested just for trying to go out there. Sure. If they tell you, well, I mean, if there's a sign that tells me if you go beyond this point, you are in a military installation and you can be arrested, I'll follow that sign and say, mm -hmm. okay, I can't go here. If some military guys say you can't go, you can't right. go. But if nobody stops me, I'm going to try and get right to the mountain and uh -huh. go right up onto the where the installation was. So what about, you know, we're going to get into the Thailand thing a little bit, and you were uh, one, of the, one of the folks that developed that place for climbing initially found it. Mm -hmm. um, what about other potential for anything like that? I mean, is, is it's enormous. Laos like 
It's everywhere. Right. Yeah, there's a huge amount of potential there, mm-hmm. and it's it's the same sort of thing where you've got to get used to dealing with. It's hot. It's mm-hmm. you know, although Laos isn't near as hot as southern Thailand is, right. but um, you got to deal with the heat. You got to deal with bugs and all that kind of stuff. And of course, in Laos, in some spots, you're gonna have to deal with bombs. Right. Uh, but um, the amount of rock and the amount of big giant caves, you know, mm-hmm. huge overhanging walls, things like you see from that. Uh, uh, Petzl rock trip that happened in uh, was it Getu Cave or right. whatever in, yeah. in southern China. There's a lot of things similar to that mm-hmm. in Laos. Do you think practically? You know, we were just talking about a crag in Colorado and uh, why it hadn't been developed because it's just like a little bit out of the way or a little far away. Do you think is there honestly in your mind like a practical potential for rock climbing there other than like the smattering of adventurous people that want to go and put some bolts in something that'll fall out then, you know, before anyone clips them again two years later or what? This is getting in on where, we're, where we are as a climbing tribe, as a climbing right. population. Right. How many people are actually developing routes and how many are developing to travel? Um, uh, it, you know, Thailand, the you know, Riley Beach crags, the, mm-hmm. the Pranang Peninsula crags, Tonsai and that sort of stuff, that happened because you had sort of this perfect storm of people who were interested in putting up new routes and had winters off and wanted to be living the beach life and they were good at putting up routes. So sort of a a, a mass of people showed up and put up a bunch of routes and it just flowered overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, Over a couple of years, you know, 300 routes went in. Um, And you need to have that and then all of a sudden it becomes a place that you don't just think in the middle of winter you want to go to Spain. You think, oh, maybe I'll go to Thailand instead. It would take something like that for some of these crags in, mm-hmm. in Laos to uh, uh, be developed in mass and obviously also with expensive equipment. You're probably going to want to go with titanium glue-ins just as you have to in Thailand. But I think that's within reason uh, that, that we could have that population. However, at the moment, I don't see I don't see that many climbers Mm-hmm. Putting up new routes. I don't see, you know, a lot of people travel and and say, yeah, I, you know, I I travel and I like to go climbing, but I'm not going to bring my drill all the way over here. Right. So you're going to have to find that group and get them to go. Again. Yeah, but I mean, well, I guess too, what I'm asking is, there has to be, I mean, the Riley and all those places too. There's, a, you know, there's civilization there. There's a infrastructure to 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 support lifestyle. Oh, well, okay, I mean, so I see what you're so in saying. In other words, yeah. are these things in a place where you're, no. just, you're not marching there, 10 days? There's going to be roadside and stuff, and there's going to be a resort okay. five kilometers away, right. and the food's going to be excellent. All the, all the, Those all the basics, the amenities yeah. are there. Right. Um, on this particular mountain, not, uh, not there's so not that. Right, right. right. but right. in other areas okay. around and in the country, so there I'm are trying to get people areas. stoked. Yeah. Trying well, to, now, this maybe will go out to one of these groups of people or one of these yeah. folks who, I mean, because I think about that all the time. Like what, where is the next spot yeah. where you go in and it's not much there. And then you, you know, you start the restaurant and you, yeah. the climbers hostel and the roots go in and then it becomes this place. Well, there are a couple of places already like that in okay. Laos. One's in the town of Vang Vin, which is just north of the capital. And then another one's down by this town called Takek, which is on the Thai border sort of in southern Laos. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already two places where routes are being established. Volker's doing a lot of them down in Takhek because he goes over there every year and, and does a, uh, a medical thing. He, he spends three weeks working in a hospital there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, do, doctoring people up. Right. And on his days off, he goes out and puts up new routes. Mm -hmm. He's kind of by himself, though. Um, there's not that many people coming with him. A lot of people showing up with a, you know, 12 quick draws and a rope, but not too many people showing up with a drill and a whole bunch of bolts and right. things like that. Right. But that's just one crag. There could be, you know, that, the reason there's routes there is because Volker chose that hospital to go and work at. If you, you could pick any of a thousand crags near a dozen other towns in Laos and you're going to have the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully there is somebody out there right now listening to this going, you know what? I want an adventure. I'm just going to go see if I can find a great place in Laos and, and, and put up some routes. Because mm -hmm. um, the people in Laos do want that to happen. They, they, they want whatever they can do to make their poor little country become a tourist haven. They want that to happen, and, and recreational tourism is one of the kinds of tourism that, that they're pushing for. Well, yeah, and I was thinking, you came back to this conversation we had off the mic, but was like you asked, well, why hadn't it been developed earlier? And, you know, even it's like the most convenient stuff gets done, and then it sort of expands out from there. And even this cliff felt a little too far away, and it's in Colorado, but... Right. But I was kind of extrapolating that to a world stage. Right. To where you guys happened onto this, this place that was perfect and ready to go. Right. But it's, I mean, we'll, we'll, let's talk about that. I mean, Thailand's changed a, you know, billion fold since you guys yeah. were putting up roots there. And a lot of people do go there now and they're like, well, this is too, there's too much going right. on here. Like, I want something. It's too commercialized yeah. and it's too. So people get pushed out, and yeah. you know. So I'm just kind of thinking in terms that, of that. That way. is, I, I think, if you want to go to a fully set up climbing area that is, um, you know, where you can get all kinds of food. There's going to be Italian restaurants. There's a Starbucks. There's Burger King. All that stuff is near the climbing area in Thailand now. Right. That wasn't there, you know, before. It was we only had electricity between six and ten, and it was all Thai food. And that was all you got for however long you were there was a rice-based meal three times a day. And you got kind of sick of it, actually, even though Thai food's the best. Um, that's how Laos is going to be now. Right. And but that sounds appealing. That is appealing, exactly. Yeah, to the right people. If you want, a, if you want the, the developed, perfectly put-together crag, you go to Riley. If you want to have a more adventurous thing and you want to have a quiet place and all that, you're going to go to Laos now. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing, though, that Laos does not have anywhere is completely landlocked. So, oh, right. um, so there isn't there's, not, there's not that beach thing going right. on. But it's cooler. So, um, and there's rivers to float down, and there's, there's other things you can do in Laos besides, uh, besides you know, get in the water. By the way, you know, I, I've, had, I've had like months in Thailand where I didn't even get in the ocean. I mean, it turned out I was there for the climbing. Right, like right. The fact that there was a beach was, was just an easier place to lay my bag down for my rope. It right, wasn't, right. It wasn't something I really yeah. was taking advantage yeah. of. So. Yeah. Um, so what's going on? You, you had mentioned something about Thailand. And again, that's this change. Yeah, that you they've, guys got, have seen. they've got some access issues now mm -hmm. going on. Uh, climbing is still open in the Krabi province, which is uh, where Riley, you know, the Pranang Peninsula, Tanzai, that stuff's uh, on the mainland in the Krabi province. And then uh, Koh Phi Phi, the islands, it's still legal there. Uh, but the governor of uh, Panga province, I believe it is, where some of the other islands to the uh, west of Krabi, they closed it to climbing. And we don't really understand why um, there hadn't been a specific accident or anything like that. But they just said, this is just too dangerous. You know? mm -hmm. Even though most climbers who get injured in, 
in Thailand are injured on dirt bikes. They, they just decided or to climb it. or whatever. Yeah, it's a little scooter things. Right. Um, uh, they just decided they were going to close it down. So Koh Yanoi um, and the surrounding islands there that were, was just kind of starting to come on, it's been closed there. Uh, it may open back up, and you could poach it. You know, you're probably not going to go to jail, um, though now that I've said this, if a bunch of people go do it, they probably will have to throw somebody in jail at some point to make... make well, there's your adventure. There's your adventure. You, yeah, got your you get adventure to go to a Thai time. jail. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Um, don't do that, by the way. Uh, they, uh, they've closed it, and if they open it, great, but at the moment, certain areas are closed. You can still right. go to Tonsai. Right. But, um, so what's the deal? I mean, there's just basically nobody advocating... They don't have an access fund. Right. They don't have... Uh, Is there any local guides no, or anything else? Yeah, there are, but but in in Thailand, you you kind of do what the government tells you to do. You don't want to get... You don't want to make too many waves. Right. Um, you're a lot... You know, it's a democracy, but it only goes so far sure. before the, the officials are going to say, hey, you're making too much noise about this. Right. Um, so... Uh, you know, they'll say something, they'll complain a little bit, but they won't do big giant protests and things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. Not over climbing. You know, yeah. Over a new prime minister or something, right. that can happen, right. but not, right. Over, right. not over climbing. So. Yeah. You, you're out. You sold your house. I just sold my house. Yeah. Yeah. I'd had it since 92. Uh, uh, uh-huh. And um, I sold, and it was a bittersweet thing, I, I, but I just wasn't using it anymore. You know, I used to go over there for half the year or more at, at a time. And it made sense to own a, a, this second little home over there. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't anymore. I go for two weeks. I got doggies here. I got responsibilities. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go for a whole winter. Right. And uh, it just doesn't, didn't make any sense to have the house anymore. So, um, hopefully pull ourselves out of mortgage here with house sale over there. And, um, I'll go over and just stay with friends. That's the other thing. Why, why, why own a house when your friends will let you stay with them? You right. there long enough. You can just well, all your friends that were staying at your house are probably bombed. The, those, yeah. those guys, yeah. I got a bunch of things on Facebook like, you can't sell it. You can't sell our house. I mean, your house. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah that was actually kind of funny. There were quite a few people. And, and, now and, what are we going to do? Yeah. I gotta, you mean I actually go stay in a bungalow? Right, right. Yeah. The access thing has always been a big part of your life. And that was kind of my question. How do you even deal with that in a country like that? And you basically don't. Yeah, and I tried to. Right. And I, I got, you know, reprimanded by my friends, Farang, you know, foreign friends mm-hmm. who, who uh, uh, have lived in Thailand for longer. They said, mm-hmm. you know, the more you talk about this, mm-hmm. the, less, the less access you're going to have because there's going to be a paranoia from the officials. Because, no, they can't arrest you, but they're wondering... What is your angle? You must be making money off this or oh, something right, like right, that. Right. Um, uh, they said, you know, you ought to just let the locals deal with it the way they can, but you can't go be the advocate. Right. Um, you know, be the advocate in your own country. Don't do it. Don't do it in Thailand because they're not going to believe there's just a recreational side to it. Mm-hmm. They're going to think it's a business thing that you're doing. Right. right. So, um, so I couldn't do anything for it, and there is no access organization there. Right. So, but. Um, you know, that's one of the wonder, wonderful things about the United States is we do, we do have that ability to scream about these things when we don't like the way something's going. We may not get anywhere with it, but right. um, but the Access Fund is getting places these days. They're doing a good job for us here. So. Yeah, right. Are you, are you still involved? Oh yeah, I'm the Wyoming rep, 
but there's not too much going on in Wyoming these days as far as there's lots of climbing going on, but there's not much going on as far as access related issues. And, uh, the Boulder crowd, the, the, the guys at the access fund out of Boulder, um, spend so much time, it seems at, at tent sleep that any issues they have, they don't call me first. They just, they, they call the guys in Boulder. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm working here out of Lander, but you know, we work on little things and little access issues that are going on here. And, we do have the potential at any time for something to come up, so try and keep a good relationship going with the land managers. But uh, we don't have any problems right now. The Access Fund has done a really good job of of staying ahead of the curve, and they mm-hmm. continue to do that. You know, they can continue to have people talking to congressmen and so forth, and making sure that legislation is going in the direction that helps climbers, and and that's a good thing. We need to keep that going. You know, with with access issues, you you know you've got to worry about um, you know accidents because that accidents scare the hell out of land managers. So I'm, I've been really excited to see. You. I'm, I'm doing a lot of rebolting here now. We did all the stuff that was going on in Thailand, and people people knew about that back in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, uh, now we're seeing it go on in the U.S. Um, and I'm really I'm really psyched to see that 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 there's kind of become this sort of grassroots, all right, we've got to change these things. These bolts that were put in in the late 80s, early 90s have to be replaced with newer, better, stronger things that are mm-hmm. going to last longer. And you're kind of seeing that at most crags these days. So we're doing that here in Lander, and uh, um, I try and help some of the other groups as I can um, that, are, that are doing various places. might do some rebolting this year in, in uh the red. I actually wanted to ask you a couple of questions about bolts because, you know, when you guys went through that thing in Thailand, yeah, you know, you had to put all this science in to figuring out what would work. And well, I know how your brain works too. So, you know, you're it's not. It's not just, a very good scientific brain. It's just it, it tries to be. But right. Fortunately, <laughs> I went and got. I didn't. Uh, 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 some of the other guys went and got uh, a woman involved from uh, Colorado who. I believe she got her PhD actually figuring out by writing up, figuring out what was going on in Thailand. Okay. And uh, it was magnesium oxide uh, heated up to over 140 degrees, breaks down steel 20 times faster than salt does. Okay. And uh, uh, it'll break down virtually any kind of steel. And 140 degrees is easy to reach um, in the microclimate of right against the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it probably gets to 160, 170. And we had had the hardest time figuring out why the sunny walls that weren't wet, even if they weren't right over the ocean, because we kept thinking it's an ocean-related thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's magnesium in the rock. And uh, But it was the sunny walls that were breaking down faster than the dampest, darkest places that you would think would have the most rust. And that was because the sun's hitting them and it's heating it up so much. You know, In the dark, cool places, it's not even getting to 140 degrees. But on a sunny wall, it's getting really hot, and that's speeding up the uh, chemical process. So a very smart scientist went and figured all that out and said, you guys have already started using titanium because nothing else has worked, but um, titanium is what's going to be the one thing that works here. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything steel-based isn't going to work. But, of course, that's a problem for Thailand and other karst areas, Um, Greece, Mallorca. They're going to have to worry about some of this as well. Most crags in the United States, magnesium oxide is not going to be a—it's uh, not going to be a problem. 
And so standard stainless steel stuff is, is going to be the right tool to get a lot of years out of bolts, you know, a lot more than we got out of this first set we put in in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, do you know about the science or the reality behind the, the, the stainless hanger uh, what's what is the other just carbon steel? Oh, the, what, yeah, but with the galvanic action. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because talk I, I about read, that I, a lot more in, than it actually is a problem. And recently, I read a thread. I try not to do this that much anymore, but it was you know this thread about that because I was interested in it. Yeah. But of course, it devolved into like you know you're putting up dangerous roots and you're a murderer and yeah, whatever yeah. you know. But and, and then there was people piping in with like what appeared to be like pretty, you know, knowledgeable about the science. Yeah. And then there was the hearsay posts and all that sort of thing. So what do you know about that combo? Well, and you know, with, there is going to be anytime you combine two different right. forms of steel. Uh, uh, maybe people aren't even really aware of this. Most people probably aren't. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Anytime you combine two different kinds of steel. Mm -hmm you're going to have a chemical reaction taking place. And there's just a question of the speed and how, uh, how much of a breakdown takes place in that chemical reaction. Um, fortunately, most of our expansion bolts, like if you buy a Powers five-piece bolt or uh, the Fix 10-millimeter uh, bolts, mm -hmm. I believe all those are, are, are what we call 304-grade steel. Okay. And pretty much all of the hangers are made out of 304-grade steel, so there's not a reaction. There, if you buy a non-stainless steel bolt and a stainless steel hanger, which you should only be using stainless steel anyway, but if you were to do that, you're going to have somewhat of a chemical reaction. Now, the chemical reaction is sped up by heat, but it also needs to have a, 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 something helping the conduction between the two points, and that's usually water. And if, if they're not submerged in the water, it's kind of difficult to have that reaction be, you know, be fast. Mm -hmm. So chances are, as from what I've seen, and I haven't done a study on this, mm -hmm. I've read various studies going in various directions, but what I've seen actually in the field, it seems like the non-stainless steel bolt is going to break down inside the rock where it's damp and there's maybe some salt and so forth in the in, in you know in the limestone that that helps speed you know speed up the breakdown process. That's actually going to be faster than the breakdown between the two metals. That's touching what I, each other. regardless of the Rega yeah. Thing. So yeah, you do have this breakdown happening, but that's not the real breakdown you probably have to worry about. Right. You might have to worry about that breakdown on let's say El Cap where it's granite, it's pretty much inert, and um, you're you're. Your, met, your metal's not being broken down by the medium it's placed in. But if you're placing in sandstone or you know, any of our sedimentary rocks, there's a whole bunch of different chemicals inside there mm -hmm. that are probably going to be breaking down that bolt faster than the galvanic Right, so acid. in other words, the bolt's going to fail for it's gonna fail a for number of different reasons yeah. besides the hanger, yeah. hanger bolt combination. Yeah. yeah, that's my understanding, and that's, that's what I've seen so well, far. Well, that's kind of was the, was the sort of blowback or the... Mm -hmm. the, from the people who, who had this kind of knowledge of it, that it's not like you know the day after you've placed your accidentally put a stainless steel hanger on on mm -hmm. a on a bolt or a three or four steel bolt. Yeah. Like oh now it's a time bomb like right. waiting to kill somebody. And it, and they are all time bombs. Right. But 
the, the time is a long ways out. Right. But this is, again, this is another reason why the gluin is just, um, you know, there's, a, there's about 30 reasons why mm -hmm. gluins are better. Right. But one of them is you put that gluin in the rock and you have just sealed the bolt inside an inert material that will not break down the steel. Mm -hmm. So whatever could be going on in there, it's not happening with, right. with a standard glue-in bolt. It could be happening a little bit with, the, with the, a couple of the designs that make contact, like a piton inside the wall. But even there, it's probably slowed down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. so you're taking away all the oxygen and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, and, that, and that's like, again, you know, and a part of this, this debate, and I've seen it elsewhere before, too, is that, you know, yeah, these stainless bolts, stainless hangers, and glue-ins are the best. But, you know, the truth is, is that they're really expensive. Um, like a five-piece stainless raw is, I don't even know, but it's like... Yeah. They're, they're spendy. Yes, they're way spendy. spendy. And they're actually way more expensive than the glue-ins. Right. I mean. and then, but then you get into the whole <clears throat> issue of the glue and the glue-ins. And, you know, like, for instance, Indian Creek, like, you know, what do you do at that anchor? Because you need to immediately lower off of right. it. Right. So it's, like, not that useful unless you're replacing an anchor. Right. Replacing them with glue-ins works. Right. Over, you know a day or two where you can come back and pull the other bolts and all that sort of thing. But, you know, but I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, look, you know, the glue in's not always right. the way to go. Right. And also there's another reason for Indian mm -hmm. Creek is, um, you know, once you get inside that patina on Wingate, mm -hmm. um, you, you're, you've got a pretty soft medium in there mm -hmm. that you may not even be able to brush the hole out correctly. You know, we've right. seen a couple of, of glue ins come out with all the glue hardened onto the glue in and it just didn't adhere to the rock because right. The rock was just soft sand. Right. Um, the sand just pulled apart. Sure. Um, so there's other there's play, there's reasons why you wouldn't down there. Well, and that's kind of like when we talk about reasons for a bolt failing, especially in the creek. What I've seen is that the the use of it is somehow like, or the 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 erosion is just it's going to fall out on its own because the mm -hmm. hole erodes. Yeah. And not to do with the steel, not to do with these combos, but the replacement because they start to get a little loose. Oh yeah, you know, you know we get I mean? you get on top of one of, of some of the towers and right. the bolt's sticking up two inches out of the rock and right. it was flush with the summit of the rock right. when it went right. in. So, and that's kind of and this that's again was like almost this accusation that if you're using, you know, what I always called carbon steel bolts versus mm -hmm. stainless, you're like again, you're somehow like just like I said, a murderer, you're going to just kill people. And, you know, I, like statements like, well, I'm not coming to climbing your crag. And I'm like, well, dude, at this point, you've eliminated like 90% of the climbing you've done because it's up to this point, it's mostly been on those bolts. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're getting replaced now with stainless steel, but, you know, no dirtbag climber 20 years ago was rocking stainless steel. I bolts. don't even know. I don't even know if we could get them back. Right. Now. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's obviously the thing to think about is, you know, a lot of times, not always, and there's always those surprise ones where they looked great and you pulled them out. But I think there's oftentimes, you know, you're climbing on old bolts. Yeah. And when you're climbing on old bolts, they're they look old. Maybe they're not rusty, but you can tell they've been there a long time. You got to mm -hmm. be cautious. Yeah. You know, and it's it, there is some personal responsibility there. There needs to be. That's one thing that we, that we need to never let die in the climbing, in our in our climbing tribe, and that is. Uh, you are responsible for whatever you clip, right? Not the not the person who put it there because it worked fine for them, mm -hmm. and then they had to leave. Right? You, know, you are responsible for going, and it may be forty years old or maybe four minutes old. But if you were willing to clip that thing, 
you have to take responsibility for anything that happens with it. And probably it's all going to be fine. But, um, you know, we're not overseeing uh, how these how these things are. You know, there's, there's anchors on top of towers that are getting hit by lightning on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, right. tell yeah. me North Six Shooter anchors never been electrified. Right, right. So, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Anything could be could be happening up there. Right. Yeah. That's a You know, it's again, it's just kind of like more and more people in the sport coming out of out of. I think partially it's still that kind of coming out of the gym and, mm-hmm. and not, you know, how these bolts get here. Yeah. They never really think how these bolts got here. They're just, they're there and somebody's taking care of them. Right. And luckily, I mean, a lot of sport climbing areas are having people in coalitions and things form that are actually taking care of them. And especially like lower off anchors that are getting cut through and stuff. But, but uh, you know, it's just an interesting willingness to accept what you found there. accept what you yeah. found and you'll be the one last person to lower through it even though it's almost cut through and then but then the other thing is that then going online and and telling somebody some ephemeral person out there yeah. to go and oh hey this anchor's fucked up like yeah beware yeah you're talking about someone i think is his name right yeah, someone he's someone has to do yeah. all the things you know yeah. and I, I i you know i remember posting something and where there was like multiple multiple posts about how screwed up an anchor in the creek was and i'm like well who's gonna go wrench it come on and it was just because it needed to be tightened down right it's like well i know it sucks but you know if you have a wrench in your car you know do the you know, Carry it 45 minute round trip to go down to the car and get it and come yeah. back up, climb the route again and tighten it. But nobody wants to interrupt their day yeah. and be the guy that's like going to take a chunk of their day to, to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or maybe they don't have a wrench, but a lot of times, you know, you get something out of your car, you can get them tightened down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's all taking responsibility and, and uh, it's just, I mean, that's like life though. Everybody's like, well, somebody ought to do something about right. this thing. You right. Know, like the thing I always try to advocate, it's like an offset idea is that yeah you can't be responsible for the bolts at all these crags in the world Mm -hmm. so be responsible for your home areas be an Mm -hmm. advocate be someone who's you know giving money to the to the whoever's replacing the bolts replace them yourself yeah at your area and then that offsets you being the person take care of your own community that can't take the time to fix it somewhere else yeah 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 and everybody does it in their spot then it works Yeah, yeah we're totally good so I don't know. Keep that. Keep that in mind. But uh, cool. I, I really wanted to get that out because I know that you're a person who's who's also not just like I don't know how these bolts work. They just do. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're gonna stop and figure it all I, out a little I, bit. <laughs> I, I I think I know a little bit more than that. But then you know you never know. Is it a little bit of knowledge is is a dangerous thing? So, right. But so far there, you know, uh, we've got good science actually on what is working and and. Um, you're going to get more time out of stainless steel than non-stainless. Glue-ins are great for certain things, especially sport climbs. And, um, yeah, everybody should be trying to take care of your own part of the climbing area. And then it, when you go visit some climbing area somewhere, it will have been taken care of by the locals. So Right. Yeah. And I'll say that if you go and do one of my obscure first ascents in Indian Creek that I've never expected anyone to repeat, you're going to find two three-eighths inch Carbon steel rolls. I apologize. <laughs> Take a bolt kit, and uh, and 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 if you're doing an old Calouse route. Um, Take some stainless steel bolts and a bolt kit and go out there and fix it. Yeah, like that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, anyway, all right, cool, man. That was a good hour. I'm psyched about your book. 
Um, I, I, I hopefully we'll hear about your adventure. I'd really like to see if, it. yeah, I'd, really, I'd see if, I, I think a lot of climbers would really like this book because one of the things I tried to do with it mm-hmm. was if you're our age, well, I mean, I know I'm a few years older than you, but, but if you're 50 or younger, mm-hmm. most of what you've learned about Vietnam was in the movies. Mm-hmm. Like you, we weren't taught it in school because it's a taboo subject to go into. You know, no, no teacher wants to go into it because they're, they're, one one kid's father might have served over there, and another kid's father sitting next to him might have been a, a anti-war activist. And they take home their homework and and get a reprimand from the from the parents. That the teacher gets a reprimand the next day. It's just a taboo subject that we don't really learn about in school, um, but it is a major part of our history. It's a major part of the Cold War that 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 we need to learn about. So I tried to write a book that uh, that would explain the war a lot better and make it entertaining. And it also just so happens it's a climbing book. Okay. So um, I'm hoping that, that uh, we climbers will get something out of it. And it'll be available in the end of August. Okay, so, cool. Well, uh, this with, will, yeah. that's going to be in the past by the time. Oh, holy cow, that's that. right. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. the, way this, the way this system works. It's out there, man. Yeah, it's out there. Okay. Right on, Sam. Thanks for sitting down again. OG, first 10 episodes five years ago. Um, it's nice to reconnect on this. Thing. It's it's and it's good to see. It's good to see it's going really well. And I'm I'm glad you've you've got people out there listening. You are the voice of us, and you're doing a great job. Yeah. So Sam, I called you up because um, I've been watching your social media, and you did the trip you warned us about in the interview. Tell us about your trip um, to Laos and, and what what you, what you find. It went great. Uh, you know, fourth time seems to be the charm. Um, uh, there were four of us: uh, my wife, uh, two friends, Shep Vale and um, Josh Miller. We got motorcycles, and essentially rode across the northern part of the country and made it into the main area where Heavy Green, my book, takes place. And uh, the Laotian government is actually working on rebuilding the road that the North Vietnamese built into Phu Pha Thi. And we found the road under construction, kind of like a mess, you know, they don't, they don't put like big signs up that say, you know, construction taking place and have people standing there to protect you and stuff. So (laughs) there were explosions and, and rock being dumped off the sides above you and stuff. But we managed to ride the dirt bikes basically to the base of the mountain. And then there were some soldiers there that stopped us and said, no, no, no tourists can go beyond this point. But Yeah, I made it to the mountain that I've written the book about and rode through the areas that are featured in the book. I even got to go in the, uh, in the caves that were the base of operations for the North Vietnamese in the Patet Lao. Nice. Um, Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, it's easy for people to get there. But as it is right now, you know, there's there's package tours going to Luang Prabang and and the Plain of Jars and stuff. You know, these major 
famous things in, in Laos, but once you get off the beaten path, it's, it's kind of rough and tumble out there, and it was difficult for us to get there, but we did it, and uh, it was a great trip, and I'm just super psyched that, that I finally got there after all this time. Mm-hmm. And was it basically, I mean, you guys weren't really on that part of the leg going with any climbing intentions? Was it just an exploratory mission? It was totally exploratory. There was, yeah, there was no, you know, you go into Southeast Asian jungle with the intent of putting up roots, and you need to be going with machetes and, uh, you know, all kinds of tools for clearing stuff away, and you need bolting gear, plus you need lots of thread. It's not something you're going to be carrying on a motorcycle. Uh, so when you were guys were in uh, in the country there, um, and you're 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 cruising around, looking at all these things you'd sort of written about based on your research, um, did anything like inform or uh, you know change maybe the way you looked at the story that you'd written or the story that you'd read about? No, but let's say they wanted it to. You know, you'd. Uh, you know, it's it's still a, a communist country, and fighting the Americans is sort of the highlight of their history, right, um, in this part of the country. Um, because once you get up there, you're almost in Vietnam, and the, the influence the influence on the western part of the country is very Thai, and the influence on the eastern part is very Vietnamese. So you'll see all the signs, you know, we'll, we'll talk about... Um, the American offensive and things like this, which kind of rewrites the history, considering there wasn't actually an American army stationed in the country. They don't want to, I, this, is, this is the main thing I noticed, they don't want to point out that it was essentially a civil war going on then with the Hmong tribe uh, fighting uh, as an American surrogate army, but they had been fighting the North Vietnamese and the communist Laotians before we even got involved. And you can see in all of the signs and all of the interpretive stuff that they have put up in a few places that they're trying to to miss the point that, that this was actually a civil war because then that brings up that brings up all the possibilities of a continuation of said civil war. So they talk about it, you know, there's an outside force that, that was here. And, um, and of course, we were an outside force, but we weren't an outside force per se as the Vietnamese were an outside force. Um, we, were, we were in the air, and they were actually occupying on the ground. But I would say that my research, to answer your question more directly on what, what I did take from it, um, my research went very well. Um, I, I, I visualized the certain things I didn't have pictures of. I had a pretty good visual idea of what they were, they were like, and, and I got pretty close to it. You know, you spend enough time delving into it, you kind of figure it out. So I wasn't, I wasn't shocked. I'll tell you what I was shocked by, though. Oh, cool. There's the difference from my last trip to this trip. Last trip, I think, was 2004, maybe 2003, and we were a unique thing somewhat outside of Luang Prabang and Vientiane and Bang Vien. And now there are package tour buses going to certain spots with, at any one time, I bet there's a couple thousand Korean uh, tourists in the country. And, you know, like in the Plain of Jars, uh, uh, Singer, Smith and I, we were there. This was... Yeah, this is to 2003, and we're the only ones there. Like, and there were no trails demarcated or anything like that. It was just, 
okay, there's a bunch of jars up on the hill. We'll go and look at them. Now there's like an interpretive center and all this stuff. So t- Laos is coming forward with tourism, and it, it does seem to be paying some bills there. So it's kind of, it's kind of shocking to see how much it had changed in that way. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, I just wanted to check in for your update, and maybe we can tack it on there because it happened. You just got back, what, days ago, right? Yeah, I just got back, and I'll be updating the website, samleitnerjr.com, with uh, uh, photos and story of, of, you know, both how we we did it and what we did when we were uh, traveling across Laos. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have all that stuff up probably by the end of the week. Okay, cool. Yeah, this will be out in a couple of days. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, one of these times where me taking so damn long to put out your interview actually worked out because you got home in time to uh, give us You're a busy day. man, dude. You, you got yeah. the normal baby. You got your business. Uh, you know, that's about it. All right, but the baby's kind of busy. Yeah. No, no, we're. It's just because actually the the nice thing was it's because I had a I had just a a a lot of people um interested in being on the show and so I ended up getting a pretty big backlog over the summer, um which I'm actually running out of. So these things will be a little bit more current coming up. You're not implying I got bumped. Uh, you got bumped. Yes. Yeah. Um, you did, actually, a couple times. Uh, mainly, I mean, sorry, but Honold had to bump you. That's just is the way things go um, oh. in the world of climbing these days, I, I'm afraid. Han who? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. And, uh, you know, and also I, I just I, I kept um, having this, like, trouble with, like, you know, just guy after guy, dude after dude. So when I would get a woman recorded, I'd, I'd kind of throw her in the line because I needed to break break up the – the testosterone a little bit. There is, um, there needs to be more estrogen in the sport for sure. Yes. Plus, you know, you know, we're rolling right into Christmas. Maybe we'll sell some books for you. Hey, that'd be great. All right. Hey, awesome. and I'll be Thanks. buying. I'll be buying bolts to rebolt with with money you spend on books. Oh, awesome! Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. All right, we'll talk to you later, buddy. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Sam for sitting down, and thanks to Sam for uh, putting all those bolts in and replacing anchors and putting better hardware, newer hardware, the proper hardware, in all over the place, much of it out of his pocket. Heavy Green is out. can be found at booksellers. can be found on the Kindle. So this is like the, this is like the shameless commerce episode. But, yeah, another thing to check out out there, Sam's book. He just wants to get it read. See what people think. And you can let them know what you thought at samleitnerjr.com. That's samleitnerjr.com. Okay, let's just keep it simple. Take care of each other, whether you're climbing or not. Look out for each other out there. And, of course, check your knot.